Please give your careful attention. This is God's word. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil and with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or of unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that it is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you, grain, if you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed new grain. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. So uh, several months ago, or maybe it was a little bit more than that, Pastor David says, Pastor David Moon told us, I have a great idea. And we said, what's your great idea? I know the next theme that we're going to talk about uh, for our sermon series. And we were all very excited, and we said, uh, what, what's it about? And he said, it's going to be on the five major offerings of the Lord. We're like, okay, all right, that, that's great. Well, which one do you get? And he said, I'm going to take the, the whole burnt offering. I was like, that's the biggest one. <laughs> and, then, and then he goes, all right, and Pastor Sam, his Korean name is Hwapyong, which is peace. So he gets the peace offering. I'm just like, oh, well, what's my middle name? Uh, what am I going to get? I got grain. You saw what we read. <laughs> yeah, I got grain. Uh, so... I, I, I looked at it, and as you've just read it, and it's pretty much, there's cooked grain, there's uncooked grain, and then there's special grain, and then the priests get some of that. That was, most scholars believe, that was probably the majority of their income. All right, praise team, come up. We're done. We can go home now. Just kidding. But yes, it's, uh, as I was studying the Word of God uh, there were truths unknown to me, I confess, as I was studying Leviticus chapter 2. And I've learned so much rich beauty from God's word, for God's word points us ultimately to Christ Jesus. Last week, we began a new series for the month of August, where we learned about the first of the five 
offerings, the major offerings found in Leviticus, which was the whole burnt offering. And if I could summarize all of that, pretty much it's this, that anybody who brings the whole burnt offering, they are saying to God, all that I am, all that I am, I offer to you. Beautiful, right? All that I am, I offer to you. Now, frequently accompanying the whole burnt offering was the grain offering. And the grain offering, for the one who is offering the grain offering, is saying this to God, all that I have, I offer to you. And so together, all that I am, God, all that I have, I offer to you. And it's not because God needs us or the things that we offer. But all of this makes sense in the context of a loving relationship. When I became a parent, I did not realize the beauties that would lie ahead for my life. Although, yes, it was very difficult and challenging, these beautiful memories of my family I I will always carry with me everywhere I go. I remember when my firstborn daughter uh, misbehaved. And my wife and I, we have a practice of how we scold our children. We have a practice. That means we do it a lot. And we say to them, Sophia or Emily, you are our daughter. Our daughter does not do these things. And the reason why we start this way is because we don't want her behavior to determine her identity. Because before I would say, bad girl, bad. And what was I doing biblically? I mean, it's easy to say, but what was I doing biblically? I was saying that who you are is determined by what you have done. And so my wife and I said, well, this is just not the gospel. And so what we need to do in practice is to say, you are first and foremost my daughter. And my daughter does not behave this way. And because I've gotten really good at this, I'm really ready for my son, Calvin, uh, for when he does these things. In the context of relationship, I realize the beauty of our passage today. Because one morning, my daughter woke up very early. And I was hearing a tune coming from her room, and I didn't really know what that was. Later on, I go into the living room, and she comes out and says, Daddy, I remember what I did yesterday, and I wrote you a letter of what I did and why I love you and why I won't do it again. But she didn't read it. She sung this to me. She didn't have to. It was willing out of her own love for her parents and I'm not an emotional guy, but these days I've been caught by some of you with some sweat in my eyes, not tears, sweat. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, these things are starting to slowly break my heart little by little. And in the context of our loving relationship with our Heavenly Father, we see that the context of this offering is beautiful in that God gives to us so that we and give to him. We just sung, right, ladies and gentlemen? He takes away, he gives, and he takes away. But we will see today that he, yes, he gives, he takes away, only to give again. And 
as we live long in this life, we will see, yes, there are painful moments where God takes things away from us so that we can empty our hands to receive fresh blessings, fresh bread for that day. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Lord, we would be the most miserable of people in the world if our hopes were only in this life. Because we are hopeless, Lord, without Christ's righteousness, our lives could never be comfortable, and there would be no hope at all for eternal life. If you denied us that hope, we would be the most miserable one of all. We may be happy without worldly enjoyments, but all things in the world cannot Make us happy without you. So however you treat us in this world, whatever you deny us, Lord, deny us not this, that we can be happy without riches and abundance like Job and Lazarus were. We can be happy even if we are reviled and reproached as was Christ and his disciples. We can be happy and comfortable in prison as were Paul and Silas, but we cannot be happy without the righteousness of Christ all the riches, places, and honors on earth will leave us miserable if we are without you. We thank you for the gospel of Christ that welcomes us, invites us, and not only gives us a home, but transforms our identity from rebels to saints, from orphans to sons and daughters. Lord, soften up our hearts, we pray, and may your people receive your word with gladness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, KCPC, how do you smell? What do you smell like? That question can be somewhat offensive. And yet, many years ago, this was the exact same question that my wife and I were asked. You see, we were on a date and we went to a Korean barbecue restaurant. And as we enjoyed the sights and the smells and the sounds of the kalbi sizzling on the grill, along with the warm and comforting smell of white rice, we were transported to a whole new world. Now, after our wonderful dinner, uh, we went to a local blockbuster. You remember those? Blockbusters, they used to, you could rent DVDs instead of downloading them. Yeah, what's the joy of downloading? you got to go, right? Uh, but yes, there was Blockbuster, and we went to a Blockbuster to rent, some, uh, rent a video or whatever. And as we were doing so, uh, uh, an employee of Blockbuster stood up, stopped what he was doing, and he approached us, and he says, What do you smell like? That's messed up. No wonder. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to say anything mean. But... You know, we were startled, and he said, I know that smell. I know that smell. And our offense is not diminishing at all. Um, but he said, you smell like that Korean barbecue restaurant a mile or so down the road. I love Korean barbecue. You guys are making me hungry. Now, uh, you know, as our, my wife and I, we were very surprised, we learned still something new that day, that oftentimes, before we even recognize it, others know how we smell before we do. It's not until they tell us that you smell different that we are aware of what we smell like. But I wonder, brothers and sisters, 
that after this wonderful worship service to God, that we have just sung praises of Christ's beauty, Christ's redemption, Christ's steadfast love and faithfulness in our life, and that we have confessed these beautiful confessions, and that we are here for about an hour and 30 minutes or so, that we would carry this smell, this fragrance of worship when we go back to our own world, to our families, to our friends, or to the local grocery store. My fear is for us, for myself, is that we would go to these local grocery stores or restaurants to our families and to our friends and they would not recognize anything distinct about us because we smell like them. Naturally, the question is, brothers and sisters, is what does Christ smell like? Well, we are in a series covering the five main offerings of the sacrificial system found in Leviticus. And now if you and I were the ones offering the whole burnt offering of a bull and offering the grain offering to God, what would we smell like here today? Even though this room is very big, we would smell like the sacrifice of fire with all of the aroma of frankincense. We would carry this smell everywhere we go. Now, you might be saying, certainly, Pastor John, you are not saying that we should smell like the fires of sacrifice, literally, are you? And the answer is no, not exactly. But all of us here today are invited to draw near to Christ, which is no small feat, for we are sinful in our being. And yet, though we are sinful, Christ, who is holy, 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 says to us, draw near, draw near, draw near. For my blood covers you. My love covers you. And when we draw near to Christ, we become the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15. Amen? How can we as Christians carry the aroma of Christ? Well, we can do so by remembering Christ or his past provisions, we can rejoice in Christ for future provisions, and lastly, rely upon Christ for daily provisions. These are our headings for today's sermon. So point number one, we can carry the aroma of Christ wherever we go by remembering him for past provisions. In our passage today, the Israelites are still at Mount Sinai. That means the memory of slavery is still etched into their minds. They remember the hardships, the brutality, and the abuse that they received at the hands of the Egyptians. But by God's power and grace, they remember something far greater than their trials and tribulations. They remember God and his past provisions. They remember how God rescued them from slavery through the ten plagues that brought the mighty nation of Egypt to its knees. The Israelites remember the smell of dead fish rotting in the Nile River after God turned water into blood. They would have remembered the smell of dead frogs in homes, courtyards, and fields as 
the officials would pile on dead frogs upon dead frogs, causing a stink in the land. They would have remembered the smell of decaying livestock of the Egyptians while their livestock was left unaffected by the plagues. They would have remembered the fires of heaven that came down and what that smelled like while they were in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were, and it remained unaffected again by the flames. In short, they would have remembered all of the various smells of death. I have those memories. Many of you have those memories. It doesn't take too long to remember or even to go back to the land that haunted us. We can remember the smells, the sight, the emotions, the trauma. But more than all of these, for the believer in Christ Jesus, just like the Israelites who believed in a forward, future king, savior, priest who would come and rescue them, who were all of these Levitical you know, sacrifices ultimately pointed to, the Israelites would have remembered yet an even greater smell, the smell of a new world of life, not death, freedom and not slavery. They would have remembered this as they crossed the Red Sea parted by God's power. And regardless of their current emotional, physical, mental, and spiritual state, when they remembered God's past provisions, their hearts would burn with love and gratitude for the Lord. For apart from the Lord, they would be still in slavery to Pharaoh and the mighty nation of Egypt. But contrary to this false teaching, brothers and sisters, where some believe and still teach that God only helps those who help themselves, we see in Leviticus, know that God has continues to do and will forever do, help those who are unable to help themselves. This is grace. I've heard a pastor describe grace in this way. It is God's riches at Christ's expense, not yours. Not mine, but Christ's. And if God, this God, helped us back then, in the past. And if this God never changes, he is the same today, yesterday, tomorrow, forevermore, and he loves us with steadfast love, then brothers and sisters, we say hallelujah for regardless of our current status, our socioeconomic status, our education, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we are the envy of this world, not because of what we have and what we have done with our lives, but because of him who has us. If God were to take away everything from my life and yet allow me to have Christ, I am richer than any rich man or woman in this world, more safe 
more loved, more protected. This is what they would have remembered. But what about us today for God's people? Yes, in our passage, God has redeemed already Israel from Pharaoh who ruled them. God has redeemed Israel from Egypt who enslaved them. But ultimately, this redemption points us to Jesus for Christ, brothers and sisters and friends. He has redeemed his saints from a greater ruler and from a greater land of slavery. He has saved us, not even from the world, but from a greater enemy that resides in us, our sins. And if this was never clear to you, let it be clear to you now. The gospel addresses two prongs in the Christian. It addresses, on one hand, that we are victims of sin. Sometimes, it's not your fault. But that we live in a broken and fallen world. We come from broken families, broken civilizations, broken education system, broken relationships, broken churches. And we feel the effects of all of these things. And the gospel addresses us in our pain and in our trauma as well with this incredible promise As you remember the great sacrifice and offerings of Jesus Christ upon us, know this. God says this bold declaration that there will come a time when God himself will wipe away every tear that flowed from your face. That he is here as your comforter He is here to reside with you, remain with you, so that you will never feel alone, for he is your God. He is our Emmanuel, and that you are not a victim. You are his son. You are his daughter of the Most High. The second prong that the gospel addresses, though, is that we, too, are perpetrators. Brothers and sisters, I have sinned. And so have you. Yes, we are in a system of brokenness, but we have not responded the way that Christ did. For Christ, the incarnate Christ, who was 100% God and 100% man, who resided with us, did not sin in a broken world. But I have. Fits of anger, jealousy, and strife. And what does the Bible say? Why Why does this happen to me? It's because I desire and I do not have. And I do not have because I do not ask. And even if I ask, I don't ask with the right motivations. And so the answer is no. And so we take, we pillage, we steal, we dishonor, we hurt. Instead of giving one another the benefit of the doubt, our knee-jerk reaction is skepticism, distrust, revenge. And perpetrators... You and me. Christ has come for us. And he says to us, look at my hands. I have paid for your sins. Do you know how beautiful that is? I know you do because even a child can understand how beautiful that is. My firstborn, 
um, is more similar like uh, her mother. And my second born is kind of like me in, in terms of our temperament and personality. Uh, my first born has a robust uh, spectrum of emotions, just like her mother. And no, no, it's a good thing. Hey, why'd you laugh? <laughs> Honey, I love you. <laughs> it's them. <laughs> um, but no, 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 it's a good thing. It's a good thing. And um, in fact, I, I think I, I, that was what healed me in my marriage because my wife has oftentimes said, I think I married an android because of my lack of emotions. But, you know, uh, Sophia, my, my firstborn, doesn't fully sometimes believe that I have forgiven her because she's so sensitive. And oftentimes my knee-jerk reaction is, you know, I want to say to her, I've forgiven you. Stop asking me for forgiveness again for the same thing that you did last week. You know, and she's so sensitive, and I, I, I love her for that. But it is so reassuring because every night we have family worship together and we have family discipleship. And one of the things that we say together out loud as a family is that Christ has forgiven us. And the proof of that is his blood. He has died for you. You are forgiven. I want you to know that, savor that, live by that, because oftentimes when we go through those doors of what some, uh, uh, one of my favorite uh, uh, Bible teachers has said, those doors of amnesia, we leave these doors and we go back into slavery again, trying to compensate for what Christ has already died for, paid for, and we go out Ideally, with the fragrance of Christ's forgiveness. Because of what Christ has done for us by dying upon the cross, victims and perpetrators alike now have fellowship with God. That is our gift. And regardless of where we come from and where we are now, God has come for us. Perhaps we have forgotten these beautiful truths. 1 John 4, 19, you are now loved. Ephesians 1, 6, you are now accepted. John 1, 12, you are now a child of God. John 15, 14, you are a friend of Christ. Romans 8, 17, you are joint heirs with Jesus, sharing his inheritance with him. 1 Corinthians 6, 17, you are united to Christ. You are the temple of God, 6, 19. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, you are members of his body. You are redeemed and you are forgiven. You are freed from condemnation. All of these wonderful, beautiful passages of truth because of what Christ has done for you and where this culture is so quick to cancel you. Christ has come to accept you as you are and transform you to be something that you could never dare imagine. Amen. There was a North Korean defector who defected to South Korea. At first he was amazed at the technological advances and privileges of the South Korean people. But later on, he noticed something very, very disturbing. He noticed that even though this land was like the promised land of the Bible, it had riches and food and education and whatever, all of the worldly goods, he noticed something. He noticed that there were young people 
so willing to end their life. And he was so perplexed. And he said in the interview, in North Korea, we don't think about ending our lives. We think creatively on how to live another day. But here, where there is so much abundance in everything, there are so many young people who are willing to end it all. And as I heard this, I learned something that day, that we too can be disillusioned by the pleasures of this world that can never truly satisfy Obviously, money, if you've, if you've been churched, you know that money, we teach that. Money cannot satisfy. Power cannot satisfy. Marital uh, advantages and blessings cannot satisfy. Marriage itself cannot ultimately satisfy. Did you know that? Young people who are about to get married, sorry. He's going to disappoint you. And so is she, by the way. We live in a world uh, where, in, you know, in, in marriages, in marriage ceremonies, you hear this from the pastor, right? He says, you know what? He says to the man, you know, you know how to have a happy marriage. I think you all know this, right? Happy wife, happy life. You know how self-centered that is? <laughs> Do you know how egomaniacal that is? Do you know how evil that is? As if two souls that are stained by sin could unite together <laughs> as long as she's happy. As long as he's happy. Two sinners cannot be happy. <laughs> there are three people in a marriage. Me, my wife, and God. He is the glue that makes us happy. He is the one that points us to a greater calling and tells us to look outside of our own needs, for we cannot find them in each other. In fact, my wife doesn't even know all my needs because I don't know all my needs. It just depends on the day. But Christ us. This is a world that we have just accepted. A world of pleasures but without God. It's like going on a fancy date without your date. Ridiculous. And yet Israel had something far greater than these treasures. They had the date. They had the spouse. They had the shepherd. God himself. And with this confidence in past provisions from God, point two, they could rejoice in God for future provisions. In verse one, it says, when anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. That's verse one. And in Hebrew, the word anyone is nefesh, nefesh. And it means more than just anyone. It literally means soul. So why does the Hebrew not use the generic word for anyone or person, but use the specific word, soul. It is because that is what God has redeemed. Not just your personhood, but your very soul. And the soul that knows that they are secured by God and God alone 
would bring this voluntary offering to God out of gratitude. Some of us might recall the scene commonly referred to as the sacrifice of Gomorrah from the movie Avengers Infinity War in 2018. In this, in this scene, the mighty warlord and galactic conqueror Thanos was closing in on possessing what is called the soul stone. This stone was out of one out of six gems, and if you combine it together with the snap of a finger, you could eliminate half of the universe. Kind of a nice guy, right? Well, as he was about to get the soul stone, there was a Grim Reaper-like figure, character by the name of Red Skull, uh, who served as the gatekeeper uh, to the soul stone. And he uttered these words to Thanos, in order to take the stone, you must lose that which you love, a soul for a soul. And at that point, Gamora, his daughter, begins to laugh and mock him, for she hated him for all the evil that he has done. And, he, and she says to him, now the universe has judged you, cursed you. You cannot have what you so desire. For she thought that Thanos did not love anyone, didn't love anything, was incapable of love. But then all of a sudden, Thanos turns around with tears in his, streaming from his eyes. And he said this, I ignored my destiny once, I cannot do that again, even for you. I'm sorry, little one. Thanos grabs his daughter and drags her over a cliff while Gamora is resisting with kicks and screams. And in the end, he sacrifices her, a soul for a soul. Is this what the grain offering is about? I give to God my soul so that he gives me his soul? Our soul is not ours to give. Our soul was purchased by God himself. He purchases our soul and enriches us with treasures untold, giving us a new identity. And this is what we are to relish and savor and enjoy and never forget that this is what we have been saved for. He has predestined us to be adopted into his family by his son for us. In that regard, yes, a soul for our enslaved soul. Jesus does not drag us over to a cliff, but he carries our cross. And he is nailed to it and dies on our behalf. Leviticus 2 helps us understand the true meaning behind these sacrifices and why it matters for us today. By offering to God what we have, we testify to ourselves, our loved ones, and the world that our security and assurance comes from God alone. And so, verse 1 continues on, and it says that uh, it is to be offered with oil and frankincense. Most likely, the oil was for combustion purposes because it was also thrown into the fire. Uh, but also, the frankincense was very costly, and that was the aromatic part of the offering. And what, what would happen is, is that they would bring this fine flour. It's called fine flour, not because of its texture only, but because it was of great quality. And the priest would take that and take a handful of it and throw it into the fire, and the smoke would rise up, and God would say, that is a pleasing aroma to me, indicating that he has accepted this heart. Not simply the offering, 
It's not just the act of giving stuff to God. It's actually our hearts that he has redeemed and rescued. And when he sees our hearts and he says, that is beautiful. That is what I saved. You are who I love. Now, frankincense is expensive, but what about if they couldn't afford frankincense? Well, then you go to verses 4 to 10, and you could cook the grain at home, unleavened, and you would dedicate that to God in, in all sorts of different ways of preparing it at home, and you would bring it to the priest, and you could dedicate all of these things. And the idea is this, that Everyone, every nefesh, soul, it doesn't matter about whether you are rich or whether you are poor, God who is abundant and gracious and rich in love towards you, you are called then to respond with that love and gracious act. And so if you can't afford the frankincense, that's okay, for all of us have time, whether we are rich or poor. And so they were to go home and prepare their finest flour and make amazing bread to offer. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says this, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You ever get anything from a friend and they didn't want to give it to you? You ever have that awkward moment where uh, you have a friend and I'm not thinking of anybody and you're going to a restaurant and uh, they're just known to never pay for the food? <laughs> Uh, yeah, so you guys are there. Um, and, and, and so we, we, we know that. But for God, he, he understands, he sees our very hearts and sees whether our hearts have truly seen and tasted that the Lord is good. And out of that, we offer to the Lord. In verse 11, there's some prohibitions there, no honey or leaven. And the reason for that is because both of these ingredients uh, cause uh, fermentation and decay fermentation and decay. And that was very symbolic because this bread that they were offering to God was what God has offered to them originally, right? So God has given to them, and they're giving to God what God has given to them, and this was a sign that God was going to provide for them, right? So this is future provisions as well, right? And so they, they're, they're, given, uh, they're giving this uh, offering to God, and they can't have anything that symbolizes that this will decay because God is always faithful, God will provide for us our daily bread. This is what we pray for. And so uh, we, they were uh, not allowed to bring honey or leaven into the, uh, the uh, grain offering. Now, this doesn't mean that, you know, sinners could not come into this welcome worship service, you know. Uh, absolutely not. We were all invited to it, all of us. Right worship is not about having no sin, Right worship is actually acknowledging that we have nothing to offer to God that wasn't already his. We have nothing to offer to God that wasn't already his. That we come before God, all of us, broken, hearted, with contrite spirits. That is right worship. And then the last category was the best of all. It was the offering of the first fruits. Stay with me now. This one is beautiful in so many ways. First fruits. If anyone were to offer first fruits of the grain offering to God, it symbolized utmost trust in God's provisions, not just for today, but for the future. Why? What are the first fruits? Oh, that's the first crops that come in, right? Was there a guarantee that there would be a second fruit in those days? No. 
But there was God who would guarantee that he would be their shield and very reward. Now, uh, the priests were not excused from all of this. They were to participate in all of this as well. And how would they participate? They would actually eat the, the food that was offered by the congregation. And so most scholars say that this was probably their kind of like income. And for the priests, because they were not given an allotment of land like the rest of the tribes, they didn't have property. Even the priests themselves were to rely and trust that God would provide that God is faithful. And so in uh, the New Testament, Paul says that we should, you know, I feel really dirty for even saying this because I'm talking about pastors, right? We should support pastors, right, financially in every way so that they can do their job as ministers because it is a greater statement that God is faithful to the congregation at large and that we as a congregation, brothers and sisters, we are a congregation and a people not of money or property, but of worship. That is what our distinct smell is. You want to know how to best evangelize? Tell your coworkers what you do on Sunday. That you worship God, the one true and living God. And in uh, the final verses here, it also talks about salt. And it says that it, this is the salt of the covenant. And there's so much there that I want to share, but primarily all I want to talk about and emphasize is this. The salt of the covenant is a sign that God would provide our daily bread, even into the future. Because what is salt a sign of? It's a preservative. It preserves things. It makes things flavorful, full of life. And when we see that this ultimately points to Christ, who declares to us that he is the bread of life and that he is the salt of the covenant and that when we ingest him, that when we partake of him, that we become the salt of this world, preserving it from death, giving it more life where we go. And this Christ tells us in Matthew 6, verses 31 to 33, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. O oh, we of little faith. Romans 8.32 says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Is our trust in the things or in the one, in the character and work of Jesus Christ? The grain offering teaches us as we offer to God a sweet aroma we're telling ourselves, our loved ones, and the world that our confidence is not in the clothes that we wear or the things that we have, but in the one who redeemed us, Jesus Christ. But that's future, right? That's future provisions. 
And that's past provisions, right? We've talked about the past provisions, the future provisions, but oftentimes I find myself struggling and I see that others are struggling too. Where is the daily provisions of grace? For we know that Christ has died for us and he saved us and we know that we have an eternal home to go to after this life. But what do I do about my teenager that is rebelling? What do I do with uh, bills that I can't pay for? What do I do when I go to work and I can't talk about Jesus? What do I do? Oftentimes, this is our case, that we rely upon our past provisions and future provisions, but we do not know how to rely upon God's daily provisions. Because Christ died for us, he has called us to us. He has called us to him by our new identity as sons and daughters of Christ. This is the thing that we must cherish and love forever. That we are ready to give a response to those who ask, what is that smell? Why are you like this? Why are you so easy to, uh, ready to forgive? And why do you serve? And why are you always present and kind? Our actions alone cannot declare the, you know, the, the presence of Christ, but it gives ample evidence to those around us to have conversations of Christ. I remember when I was working at a, as, a, as a waiter uh, when I was in seminary, and boy, waiters in the back, they uh, purse like sailors. Uh, and it, it, was, it was just really alarming. So I knew as long as I don't curse, I'm sure uh, I will stick out like a sore thumb, which I did. And eventually one of the oldest guys there said, you know, John, I have a weird question to ask. Why don't you ever curse? And I said to him, well, it's more than just a personal preference, but it is because of my faith in Christ. It was just a small opportunity. It was a small conversation, but creatively thinking about how we can be salt in our families, our workplaces, and our schools. When Israel was in Egypt, Israel did not have a low, middle, or high class. They were all slaves who were, who were rescued by God. But regardless of their current status, freed status, they were to remember how they started. They were never to forget their bondage in Egypt. And by doing so, God's people had confidence in God for their daily provisions. Because regardless of whether they were rich or poor, they knew that they could go to God for daily grace. This is the only offering out of the five where it receives this phrase, a most holy part of the Lord's food offering. The most holy part of the Lord's food offering. Now, why would that be? You know, from our vantage point, the whole burnt offering is a whole cow. It's a bull. So that would be most costly, right? Most significant. But from God's vantage point, it was the poor man's offering, the poor woman's offering that was more significant to him. Why? Because that offering came out of Nefesh. That offering came out of a soul that said, Lord, I can't provide for my daily needs. 
It is only you. It is not me. May I not be so egotistical and blind that every breath comes from you, that every good and perfect gift comes from you. I have done ministry now for 12, 13 years, and I've done many funerals. And, you know, when I did, you know, first several funerals, I, I, it, like, really scared me. Like, life is so fragile. It almost felt cheap. I remember when I first saw my daughter, I said in my mind, you will never be hungry. I don't care. I'm, I will work. I will work my butt off. But you will be fed. You will be clothed. You will have every opportunity that I want you to have. I got you. But then all these memories of funerals that I've attended made me realize that I am but flesh. And as I raise up my children, I want them to grow confident and strong. And so I would catch myself saying, you should be confident because daddy has you. Because mommy has you. But even as I would say that, there was an insecure feeling that I had in my heart. What if I'm not here tomorrow? Tomorrow is not guaranteed, is it, for any of us? And so I began to say something that not only comforted her, but comforted me. God has us. Whether daddy is here or gone, our heavenly father, our ultimate daddy, has us. He loves us. He, he, if he has given to us his very son, what would he not give to us? We can ask, sweetheart. We can ask him for daily provisions. I dare not come before any of you with this with these sheets of paper and say, I am ready to preach. I beg God, Lord, if you do not come with me, do not send me. Our parenting needs Jesus. My parenting needs a savior. My businesses, our business needs saving. It, it needs Jesus. Our relationships need Jesus. Nova needs Jesus. And yet we act like orphans and we do not ask. We do not pray imaginative prayers because we're not praying to God, we're praying to our fears. I'm so sorry for talking about my children so much. This week has been so crazy. But yeah, uh, my daughter's prayers are crazy. Like, Lord, I know you can save us from COVID. Whatever Delta is, Lord, you are Alpha and Omega. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> if, our, if we are not ready for this, if we are not deeply meditating upon who God is, how will we inform our uh, affections? It's just emotion at that point. But R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, great theologian, said this, it must be deep knowledge of God that informs our affections for him and that leads us to richer, deeper, honest, real worship. And so I conclude with this, and praise team, you can come up. 
maybe we're not offering to God all that we have and all that we are because we have yet to know him deeply. That if we were to be truly in his presence, that we would say, Lord, whatever you are and whatever you have, that is not what I am and that is not what I have. But if you're offering that to me, I need that in my marriage. I need that in my parenting. I need that in my job. I need that in our church. I need that in my life. And so, brothers and sisters, one application. Draw near. Draw near to Christ Jesus. And the more and more you draw near to him, the smell of Christ, the aroma of Christ will slowly be attached to you. And guess what's going to happen? That smell is going to get on someone else and someone else and someone else and someone else. In this room, whether it increases in numerical size or not, I guarantee you that it will increase in spiritual worship as we draw closer to Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great, rich love. Father, would you continue to work in our hearts May we draw closer to you, and as we do so, Lord, may we draw confidence to trust in you more and more as we are your children, your sons and daughters by faith. You have rescued us from far greater enemies than what this world can produce. You have saved us from ourselves. Being victims and perpetrators of sin, you have paid the way and gave us a way to have fellowship with you. And so, Father, we thank you that we are here today, not reluctantly, I pray, but, Lord, because we have seen and tasted that the Lord is good. We thank you, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.